Uh, all right, let's jump in. We are in our final week of a 16-week series called The Whole Story. Um, I hope today is, is an enjoyable uh, culmination. Today, also interestingly, is the historic day of Pentecost. Uh, it's the day kind of on the, the church calendar where uh, the Holy Spirit came and was present with the disciples for the very first time in all of history. Uh, and so we're, that'll be kind of wrapped in, but it's an exciting day for us for that reason. Um, quick question for you. Uh, who here has read the book of Revelation? Read the book of Revelation. Okay, a good number of hands. Uh, one more question. Who here has thought the book of Revelation is weird and complex? <laughs> Great. So we're reading and teaching out of the book of Revelation, and I just want to acknowledge, this is a hard writing to know what to do with. So I'm going to do my best to give us just some basic groundwork, while also not letting teaching on Revelation become the main point, because the main point is actually the end of the story, right? Our sermon series is called The Whole Story, and today is all about the end. What is the culmination about? So would you read with Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4? This is the second to last chapter in the writing of Revelation. It says this, 21, verse 1. Then I, John, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth... They'd passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem. It was coming down out of heaven, and it was from God, and it was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, quote, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, they've passed away. End quote. Do you pray with me one more time? Father, Holy Spirit, we uh, similarly on the day of Pentecost, we want to be filled with you. We ask you to come into this room to open our ears and our imaginations and our hearts that this text about the end of the story would not fall on cold ears or cold hearts, but we would be eager to learn about you and new things that our eyes would be primed to worship or our minds would be primed to worship and give you glory. Teach us. Amen. All right. So we started in the whole story uh, series at the beginning, right? God created. And then we worked our way through all, a majority of the Old Testament past, right? And then we acknowledged that there was a time of transition at the life of Jesus, the, a time of fulfillment, where we're now in a new age or a new hour in the words of Jesus. Um, and then we, we looked in the life of Jesus at how several points in the Old Testament were fulfilled and were beginning at the moment of Jesus and through his life, through his death and his resurrection. And now today we're looking beyond us into the future. Does that make sense? Pretty much everything so far has been behind us. There were a couple of things that were kind of casting our minds forward, but now we are concretely looking 100% into the future. That means it's a little bit unknown. We don't have all the concrete details, but that's where we're looking. And we know that the end point, like we just read in Revelation, is in one word, glory. The glory of God saturating a new heaven and a new earth and all of humanity at peace, at shalom, in wholeness, because... The glory of God is now near and present. There are no interruptions. Our hearts and our minds are at ease, healed by his presence. 
Here's the story so far. We're going to read it. This is the last time you'll read this. Um, I'm going to actually ask in, in honor of this, of the last four months together, would you read this out loud with me? Let's go. You ready? God created a kingdom and he is the king and he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. Adam and Eve rejected this call, which led to sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent through the seed of the woman, who's also the seed of Abraham. Now, through Abraham's family, specifically Judah's royal seed, David, the covenant blessings would come to the world. Because all people were guilty and deserved death, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law revealed more clearly their need for a substitute, the suffering servant. Through the servant and the work of the spirit, God would establish a new covenant and give lasting life to his people in a new heaven and a new earth, period. That's Old Testament. Join me one more time. Now, Jesus is the one through whom all of these promises find fulfillment. First, in his sacrificial death as a necessary and just payment for sin, and then in his victorious resurrection and reign as king. This great story will find its culmination when the redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation gather in the new creation to live with God forever, period. So that is the end. And the redeemed from every nation and tribe and tongue are gathered to live in God's presence, new heaven, new earth forever. That's the end. But we're still here. And so it feels almost unfair to just skip from here to the end because there's stuff between us and there. So some of what I'm gonna to do today is try to unpack really quickly some of Revelation because there's some weird stuff in Revelation that you need to know about. Otherwise, if we only know the end and we don't know some of the stuff from here to there, it's gonna catch us by surprise. I'm like, wait, what? Um, so that's not gonna be the main point, but we are gonna get into it. Uh, so we are gonna be reading today from Revelation. Uh, now, Revelation was a vision given by God to a man named John. And it's either most likely Jesus's friend, John, who was one of his disciples or another elder from the early church named John. It's one of those two, we're pretty sure. Now, sometimes revelation is called the revelation to John. It's also known as the revelation of Jesus. It'll, you'll hear it as both of those titles um, because it is Jesus being revealed. It's the revealing of Jesus. Now. What Revelation does in summary is it's revealing that there's an unseen spiritual conflict between God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and Satan and his allies, whether that's demonic or human. What Revelation shows us concretely is that Jesus has won the decisive victory. We saw that at the cross. It is finished. It is won. So we see that it's been won, but in Revelation, we see that the church continues to be assaulted between the here and the then, that future endpoint, the church continues to be assaulted as that victory is being worked out in real time. Now, importantly, Revelation is not like a cryptic secret code that we're meant to decipher and figure out like all the nations and the people and who's gonna do what when, um, though it will play out in real life, right? That's an important distinction. It will be real life nations, real life people, real life situations, but it's not necessarily intended as like get your codex and your calculator out and plot everything out on a calendar. So John wrote this with a very specific purpose, or he, Jesus revealed himself to John 
and asked John to write this into a letter and send to seven churches for a specific purpose. Um, and this purpose was to strengthen the church, the real life human beings gathered in the name of Jesus throughout the land of Asia Minor. And Jesus and John were writing this to fortify the churches in the face of evil. Um, they were suffering. So this was to help build hope. It was to make them sturdy, to help them endure in a period of hardship. It was to help them stay pure and faithful. They were fighting heresy. They were fighting division. They were fighting just like feeling beat up. So this was to provide hope. And it was also to help them resist the draw of affluence and culture. Does that sound familiar? Now, Revelation, because it is a vision, it's full of symbols and poetry, and that can be really challenging to interpret what each of those specific symbols refers to concretely, though their major uh, themes are very, very clear. Importantly, here's what Revelation does in like one sentence. These symbolic visions reveal a heavenly perspective. Notice that. The symbolic visions reveal heavenly perspective on history on our history, it's heaven's perspective on our history in light of the end of the story. Does that make sense? We're reviewing everything going on from heaven's perspective in light of the end. Now, if you'd like to learn more on Revelation, the Bible Project does a really great 20-minute video. They've got two like 11-minute videos that kind of culminate, or excuse me, they kind of capture an overview. We're going to do some of that work today, but they do a much better job. Uh, so the Bible Project, a great place to start. The next place I'd say, read it. Uh, Revelation is really confusing, but you can get the majority of the main themes by just reading it thoughtfully and slowly. It's really not as bizarre as we might think. Now, we're going to go through a quick uh, run through of the, a rough outline of Revelation, just so you know kind of what some of the main building blocks are. Uh, go ahead and put that graphic on the screen. This is actually from the Bible Project, and I'm basically going to highlight it as quick as I can. Uh, you'll notice that uh, there's kind of a box on the top left, and then again, bottom right. That's the first section, and then you've got three or four sections in the middle, and then it works its way over to the right. Um, I'll let you look at that while I just kind of run through an explanation. So chapters one through three is really an introduction. This is where Jesus reveals himself. If you're familiar where his, his eyes are like fire and his hair is like the sun and his feet are like burnished bronze. This is the revealed ascended Jesus. Remember heaven's perspective, heavenly perspective of who Jesus really is. And he, he basically has a specific message to each of the seven churches. So that's what chapters one through three is. And then it shifts where John is then transported to heaven's throne room. And he's now seeing God or a vision of God surrounded by these angelic beings. And in this moment, God's holding a scroll and it has seven like, think wax seals on this scroll. And the whole like throne room, all these heavenly beings are saying, who's gonna open the scroll? Who is worthy? And the scroll represents God's kingdom or the plan of God's kingdom coming to earth. It represents God's kingdom coming to earth and everyone's saying, who's gonna do it? And then a dead lamb walks in and everyone goes, he who's gonna do it. It's the lion of Judah. It's the lamb who was slain. He's gonna open the scroll and bring God's kingdom from heaven to earth. And then he begins. And so that then transitions us to the majority of the middle, which is chapter six through 16. And this basically goes through three sets of seven. Three sets of seven. There's seven... Um, Seven, uh, excuse me, 
There's seven seals on the scroll and it walks through each of those opening. And when each one opens, something happens. And then after that, there's seven trumpets. Every time a trumpet is blown, something happens. And then there's seven bowls. And inside of these bowls is some sort of consequence or judgment and they're poured out on the earth. And when each bowl is poured out, something happens. And so that's the majority of the middle. And each of them is essentially either a consequence or a judgment. It's either a consequence that God sends in his righteousness, or it's a judgment where God lets Satan have his way. He lets Satan have some sort of ferocious effect, um, again, out of his righteousness. Now, all of these sets of seven is revealing this. It's revealing how people respond to God's righteousness. And unfortunately, even in God's righteousness and his miraculous power displayed, most people want nothing to do with him. And they knowingly or unknowingly ally with Satan. And this is another big theme of this middle section is it's revealing that there's a spiritual reality behind our physical and historical world. That there's no such thing as a human being acting outside of spiritual influence. What this section is saying is there's no such thing as neutral ground. You are either under the possession and the loving protection and guidance of Jesus Christ, or you're not. And if you're not, you're kind of standing out alone in the cold. And whether you acknowledge it or not, there's a spiritual influence that will have an effect on you. Again, knowingly or not knowingly. So either you're under Jesus's protection or you're not. And Satan is like, there's nothing between you and he. Again, acknowledged or unacknowledged, known or unknown. Now, this is uh, not like some sort of Illuminati conspiracy because the reality is this, this applies to like governments and organizations and economies. But again, it's not like the Illuminati, like, oh, you better watch out, they're gonna get you. Um, but here's just like a simple example. Uh, my mother-in-law uh, texted me the other day and was telling me that there's a new Winnie the Pooh movie that's coming out next year. Uh, unfortunately, this one's not made by Disney, it's made by a third-party company. And what this company is doing is they're reimagining Dis uh, Winnie the Pooh and his forest friends, they're reimagining them as serial killers. This is real. Um, it's a group of humans who've gotten together and decided it would be good art and good entertainment to take innocent childhood characters and turn them into people that mutilate and torment and brutalize human beings argue to me that there's nothing spiritual behind that, that that's simply imagination, that's simply creativity, the desire to take the innocent and turn it into the wicked and the twisted. This is our reality. There's no such thing as neutral. Now, again, our goal then is to understand revelation and, and each of those three sets of seven, whether it's the seals or the bowls or the trumpets, each of them ends with judgment as something is poured out, consequence or judgment. And this is God exercising wrath on evil. Now we have a hard time with wrath and God's judgment, but I wanna back up one more step. Remember the Winnie the Pooh thing. How do you think God should feel about that? Should God go, well, you know, it's their imagination. Should God support that? Or should God be furious? I'm furious. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm fallen, but I think God should be a little bit upset about that. And I think God should intervene with that. Now, 
Revelation is coming then to a close in chapter 17 through 19. And this is a section on the fall of Babylon. Now in this, Babylon is portrayed as a, a, a woman. She's a prostitute. And she actually rides uh, this figure that represents Satan, a, a red dragon. And so to help you understand Babylon, Babylon's actually a progressive idea that is drawn from the Old Testament. Babylon was a real society, but it was also a symbol of what human civilization is like when it's in rebellion against God. And it's brutal and it's terrible, and there's no such thing as justice or equality. Now, that was an Old Testament representation, but and what John is doing is he's casting it forward then to realize that it applied to, whether it was Rome or also nations in the future. And we could take that same symbol and begin to apply it to the world around us. And again, you could try to put your codex and be like, okay, which nation is John talking about? Or you could just realize that every single human civilization in opposition to God will be a Babylon. All civilizations will be a Babylon unless they're underneath the reign of Jesus Christ. Again, there's no such thing as neutral ground. And then the final battle then is in 19, the end of chapter 19 and 20. I know this is a lot. I'm trying to move quick. This is a, a grand cosmic um, battle where the enthroned Jesus uh, now rides into battle. Remember in chapter five, he was the, the lamb. In, in chapter uh, 19 and 20, he comes in now dressed for battle. But here's an interesting point. He enters the battlefield soaked in blood. Before the fight has begun, he enters the battlefield soaked in blood. And the idea is we, we remember backwards to Revelation 5, where the lamb was already slain. The lamb enters the battlefield covered in his own sacrificial redemptive blood. He's already won the battle because he's already ransomed and purchased his people. He's already broken Satan. And now this is then some conclusive battle. And so in this moment, uh, Satan and his allies are cast into a pit in, in Revelation's language, and then they're locked up. Here's one of the parts where if you're not super familiar with Revelation, we're getting into the, the like confusing stuff. At this point, Jesus resurrects his saints, as Revelation 20 tells us, and reigns for a thousand years. We call this the millennia. We'll talk a little bit more about this because uh, there's some different perspectives. But then after this uh, millennia, there's a resurrection of all of the dead on a day of judgment. Those who've been redeemed and saved by the lamb to a resurrection of life, and those who've been in rebellion to him to a resurrection of judgment, what the Bible calls the second death. And at this point, those humans, as well as Satan and his allies are cast into the lake of fire. Whether you wanna call that hell or isolation or quarantine, whatever you wanna call it, that's the direction it's going. And all of this culminates in the beautiful reality we read at the beginning, chapter 21 and 22. After judgment has been exercised, the wrath of God is poured out on what is evil. There's a new heaven and a new earth. Jerusalem, this city that is this garden of Eden image comes from heaven onto earth and humanity flourishes in right relationship with Jesus and God. And what the Bible says is that there is no more pain, no more death, no more mourning, no more tears because God makes all things new. And this continues forever. This is what uh, we might call the eternal state. This is what most of us think of when we think of heaven. Uh, that kind of like forever um, going on forever. Now, 
That's a lot, right? It's a lot to try to put on a screen. And there is some uh, differences of opinion on how this all looks in real life, how to interpret it, how it's all gonna shake out. Um, so here's what I wanna do. I wanna talk about the basic inarguables, the things that like unanimously, these are there. And then I just wanna give you some real quick, like, and here's some different ways to understand it, okay? So here are the inarguable things that scripture tells us are real. Number one, there is some form of tribulation. What that means is like suffering and persecution of the saints and all of humanity. Humanity is going to suffer underneath its own rule and leadership, and much of that will actually be pointed in the direction of the saints of Christ. Now, we know that there will be a resurrection of all people, both saints and uh, those who are like allied with the devil, known or unknown. Again, no such thing as neutral ground. We know there will be resurrection of all people. We know there will be judgment. Those who are underneath Jesus, resurrection of life. Those who are underneath Satan, resurrection of judgment. We also know that there will be a millennium, a thousand years uh, reign where God reigns over his, or Jesus reigns over his people, but before the conclusion, before the like eternal state that we read in 21, there will be a thousand year reign of Jesus with his saints um, in the presence of uh, the non-saved or in the presence of non-Christians. We also know inarguably that Satan will be defeated. He will be defeated, cast into the lake of fire. All spiritual evil will be removed. It will suffer the consequence of the wrath of God. Thank you. We also know there will be a new heaven and a new earth. What that all looks like, not really sure, but we know it will be there. We also know that that will be the new eternal state, the new end. Now, here are a couple different ways that people approach all of that in Revelation. There's three like main perspectives just of reading Revelation as a whole. The first one is called historicism. That means that they read Revelation as a chronological ABC event. And they say that most of it is behind us. It began in, at the beginning of the church. It's rooted in history. And there's some difference of opinion. Some people say all of it was behind us or most of it. Some people say only part of it's behind us and there's still some more ahead of us. Another way of looking at it is people who say, nothing in Revelation has happened yet. It is all ahead of us. We're waiting for it to happen. That's called futurism. But they similarly usually think that it's gonna be an ABC chronology. Um, and then a third category is known as idealism. They're basically saying, no, this isn't meant to be like a chronological thing. This is just the ideas of what it looks like when humanity is in rebellion of God and the ideas of how God's gonna deal with it. So they tend not to look at it as like an A, B, C, D, E chronology. They tend to say it's all kind of happening at once. If you remember like the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, they're saying they're, it's all the same ideas. It's the same exact thing, just described three different ways. Um, and so those are three different interpretations. Uh, you can understand why some of us would then make different conclusions based on that starting point. Now, really quickly, because this is a, a big point of debate within the church, is the millennium. We're gonna spend about two minutes here. Like I said, this is from Revelation chapter 20. If you're a note taker, you're interested, look up Revelation chapter 20. That's where this comes from. Uh, so the general idea is there's three main takes on the thousand year reign of Jesus. Uh, one group called the Ah Millennialists, they basically say there is no millennium. What they're saying is that the millennium 
began when Jesus ascended. He's now ascended into heaven, reigning. Satan has been subdued more than he's ever been affected in all of history. Jesus is reigning with his saints from heaven right now. And then at some point in the future, Jesus will come back and that will be that day of judgment. Um, And then after that point, everything will happen at once and then we'll go into new heaven, new earth, eternal state. That's just one interpretation. Another interpretation is known as post-millennialism. This is, uh, go ahead and go to the next graphic. This one is a little bit similar. It says that the millennium probably hasn't started yet, but at some point, Christianity is going to spread over the whole world and the world will more and more look like the reign of Jesus. And that will be like this kind of soft transition into a thousand years where the world looks really Christian and is affected very Christianly. And then at the end of that, Jesus will come back and have that resurrection of the, the living and the dead um, to, ju- to life and to judgment. And then after that, there will be the eternal state, what many of us think of as heaven, new heaven, new earth. And then the third view is a little bit more classical Christian, though a lot more complex. Um, and that is saying that uh, the millennium has not started. We are in a church age, the Holy Spirit's working on earth. And at some point in the future, there will be a tribulation and Jesus will come back concretely. And Jesus in bodily form will reign for a thousand years. And his resurrected saints, the martyrs, will rule with him. And that will be a thousand year, um, just like age of flourishing where Satan is like subdued, has no effect. And then at the end of that thousand years, again, some people think it's a literal thousand years, some don't. But then at the end of that, that will be the day of judgment. And then after that, new heaven and new earth. You guys hanging in? This is deep stuff, uh, but I don't want it to shock any of us because it's there. And so I want us to at least know that it's present. Now, at this point, um, I want to acknowledge something. I want to acknowledge that I'm giving a lot of information and multiple perspectives, okay? Uh, If you're the kind of person who's like, but just tell me how it is. Like you're being so like on the fence about it. Um, Here's why. Number one, I wanna inform us and I wanna expose us to the ideas. Some of us have no knowledge of Revelation. Some of us have been uh, informed about this for years. And another two other reasons I'm not going into a lot of details. Number one, I just don't know that much. I've never done an intensive study of eschatology. And so how foolish would it be for me to do two weeks of study and then pretend like I know everything and try to get you to believe what I believe? So the best thing I can do, the most faithful thing I can do is go, here's some stuff. (laughs) Um, The second reason is that all of this is either secondary or tertiary, meaning of third importance. Now, let me explain that. Our goal as followers of Jesus is to be educated and to be faithful. I am not suggesting we relegate this to a position of unimportance I'm suggesting we are educated and we are faithful while recognizing that this is not primary. This is not what gets someone into the kingdom of heaven. Knowledge of God and the son and the life that he lived and the death that he died, faith in him, that is what saves. That is the thing that I will always stand on with. with, I will take no argument on that. But on Revelation, like, That's kind of like once you're in and a little bit down the road. And with that, I want you to know, like we welcome a diversity of conclusions on this stuff within our church. 
Now, again, for those of you that are like real hard on right and wrong, black and white, I'm not trying to sit on the fence, but here's where like you can know for sure. We as a church will always say that we have a high view of scripture. We trust its truthfulness. It will be our authority. And we will work to interpret it faithfully. And we will live wise and compassionate lives under the rule of Jesus Christ. Those are inarguables for all of us. But when it comes to the minors, we let them be minor. We major on the majors, we minor on the minors. Other churches have a different perspective, but that's ours. Is that fair? And we're open to talking and we're open to becoming educated and faithful together. Now, I wanna go back now to what we know unanimously, because this is where the meat is. This is where the good news is. What we know unanimously, all Orthodox Christians for all of history know that the story ends gloriously. It ends with a new heaven and a new earth where things are returned to a garden-like state. And when I say garden, I'm not just talking about like green and lush. I'm talking about Garden of Eden. I mean wholeness, rightness. Think about the word shalom, if you are familiar with that. Peace and completeness. What this means is that the hearts of all human beings will be made new. We will be healed bodily, spiritually, emotionally, and there will be complete love of God and love of neighbor. All that was bad and broken will come untrue. All of us, every single moment, will experience God personally, constantly. There will, none of that like wax and wane, turbulent spirituality that we're so familiar with. It will be 100% of the time communion with God. A simple way of understanding of that is that you will be at ease in your own body in the presence of God with full love of the people around you. And we know that this will include every nation, every tribe, every tongue. There will be incredible diversity, not only of race race and ethnicity, but of time period and thought. Uh, It's gonna be beautiful. It is a worldwide rescue. Now there's one key ingredient for all of this. And it is that God will dwell with his people. This is the magic. This is what completes the story is that God will dwell with his people. Now, I'm gonna read Revelation 21 one more time with you. Uh, Verse four, if I could be specific. Um, I don't have a slide for this, but if you'd go there. Verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So I'm a natural skeptic. And when I hear stuff like that, I start to discount it. I discount it because it's easy to label that sort of faith as a crutch. Right? Uh, some people in history think that that sort of religion where you just have this end goal, everything's perfect, that's a tool used by the ruling class to get you to suffer until the day at the end of time. Other people will argue, well, that's just something that weak-minded people of religion come up with because they can't handle the hard reality of life. So they kind of imagine this like uh, fluffy, airbrushed world where everything's happy and everyone rides unicorns and we ride off into the sunset. That is not what the Bible puts before us. It is too good to imagine and yet it is not fanciful nor silly. 
So I wanna spend a few minutes and imagine our way through Revelation uh, 21 verse four. And I want us to also logic our way through it. And as I use that word logic, um, I'm not suggesting that we draw a box called logic and put God in the middle. And if God breaks our logic, we don't believe in him. I'm not suggesting that. Um, because if, if that's <laughs> how you tend to approach a limitless creator of all things, um, you will fail. Uh, but it is helpful for us to employ our rationality and then like probe into the things of God. So that's what I wanna do for a minute. Going back to the key ingredient, the key ingredient of Revelation 21 is that God will dwell with his people. I'm gonna take a quick sidestep. What does the human soul need to be satisfied? What does the human soul need to be satisfied? A friend and I were talking recently and he said that he's been strongly influenced by this idea. Uh, he, He said it in these words, what matters most at your deathbed is who is standing there. What matters most at your deathbed is who's standing there. Do you guys tend to agree with that? At least in part, right? Sure, we could push back, we could add some nuance. Now, I think there's some truth there. Why? Because I believe that all, hu- all of humanity was built to live in, f- in, built to flourish in loving relationship. We need loving relationship. Who here out of like, of all the things I need, like, you know, I'll take everything. Don't give me any loving relationship. I'll be satisfied. No, that's miserable, right? But many of us would say, you know, cut, cut out the car, cut out the job, cut out whatever. But as long as I'm surrounded by loving relationships, I'll probably be fine. Most of us would say that. Now, here's kind of where I'm going. What does a human heart need? Or excuse me, what does a human heart why does, why does a human heart become shriveled and mean? Why does a human heart become shriveled and mean? I would argue it's a lack of love. Usually we understand this when it's a, from early childhood, when there's abuse or fear or scarcity or lack of security. Those are the hearts that tend to become shriveled and mean. It is, um, and it's not like the people who are flourishing and, and full of loving relationship and safety and confidence. Those are not the hearts that become shriveled and mean. It's the ones that have a lack of love. And Jesus, like side note, Jesus heals people, right? That is the gospel. So I'm not saying there's no hope. What I'm driving at is this idea that the human soul needs loving relationship. Now, to be whole, to be complete, the human soul needs to regularly soak in love and acceptance and safety and trust and intimacy and security. That is what we need. And that is exactly what God offers. That is why God offers adoption. That is why God offers justification. That is why God offers us an inheritance. That is why he offers us his presence. That is why, like, Everything in the Bible is that God wants to be in right relationship with us. He wants to remove all the obstacles, even at the cost of his own life, because our souls will shrivel and become mean without his loving presence. 
And throughout all of history, Christians have been able to stand up against all of the brutality of the world and somehow still remain full and loving because they are receiving everything they need from the loving presence of God. So go back to Revelation 21, right? The end of the story is that Satan and all of the spiritual evil is destroyed, punished, and removed. Our own hearts and our own flesh will be circumcised in biblical language and we will be healed. We will experience God dwelling intimately and constantly with us. We will be constantly bathing in his love and his generosity and his goodness. How might that feel? How might that affect you if all spiritual evil is removed, all the sinful flesh inside of you is cut off and cast in a lake of fire, but you are left dwelling, bathing constantly in the loving safety of God? How might your soul, all the shriveled parts, all the mean parts, how might they become healed and whole? This is the big idea that I'm driving at. If I can give one example, and this is silly, but it's real. Uh, this was me this week. I think it was Tuesday morning. I was out, uh, I was on my way to work and uh, I was on my way out the door. And uh, you guys who have dogs, you know that moment where you like grab the doorknob and they like look at you with the big eyes. And like, oh, you wanna play with me? Are you really leaving right now? So he gave me the guilty look. So I opened the door and I go outside, decide to throw the ball for him for 10 minutes before I go to work. But I'm in, internally feeling rushed. So I'm kind of like throwing the ball head down, like, okay, dog, hurry up. Like, how much longer do I have to do this? I gotta be at work, come on. And then because I've been practicing following Jesus in these small moments, I had this moment of realization. God's presence is available to me right now, even as I'm feeling rushed, hurried, throwing the ball. So I took a deep breath. Father, thank you for your mercy this morning. And I brought my head up, throwing the ball for the dog. And I, I began to look at my dog, Oliver, and, and his, the joy on his face and the playfulness and the way he's like jumping around and wagging his tail. And all of a sudden, instead of being stressed and anxious, I start saying, oh, thank you for this dog. He's so fun. Thank you for the love and the affection that he has for me and I have for him. And then I hear the birds chirping and Oh my gosh, there's this whole world around here. Oh, how fun. God, thank you for the birds. And then I'm hearing the wind and the trees. Oh God, look at all the beautiful, like just the greenery around me. And I see the clouds off in the distance and I can see them through like the glistening of the, the green leaves. And my whole heart turns to worship. God, thank you for your presence. Thank you for this silly brown dog that I get to love. And thank you for this like muddy, like no landscaped yard, but thank you for this house. Thank you for everything. Thank you that you're here. Thank you that you drew my mind out of my own anxiousness. And what went from five minutes of stress turned into 15 minutes of delight, pure delight. Here's where I'm going with this. Doesn't that sound a little bit like heaven on earth? Just nothing but worship. God, thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. If you've experienced the presence of God, whether that's through worship or prayer or contemplation or watching the sunset or playing with your dog, if you've experienced the presence of God, you know that this is the most alive you've ever felt. This is the most whole you've ever felt. All of a sudden, everything like clicks into alignment. Everything just shifts. A world that was anxious and rushed click. Oh my gosh, this is beautiful. Because 
God was now at the center. Everything was now in right relationship to him. Everything can lead to worship and delight because he's at the center. So I would ask, what percentage of your life right now are you deeply aware of God's presence and his goodness? What percentage of our lives right now are we slow and unhurried while also purposeful and generous with our time? What percentage of our lives are we just at peace in our own skin, at peace in the presence of others? No masks, no performance, no hiding. I'm at ease. I'm full of genuine love and affection for the people around me, full of love of God, aware of his presence. For many of us, that's probably not a very high percentage, but when those moments happen, they're precious because they're like heaven on earth. Part of my point is there's nothing magical or fanciful about those moments, and yet they're beautiful. You, human, limited, perfect and complete in the presence of God. And this is the reality. All of that was a clumsy way of getting us to the conclusion, this is part of the reality John is writing about in Revelation 24. No mourning, no crying, no sadness, no death. Spiritual evil has been removed, conquered, thrown into the lake of fire. And our hearts, 100% of the time, are experiencing that. 100% of the time, at ease in our own body, at ease with love and affection for the people around us, full of generosity and goodwill, full of delight and worship. God, thank you for this. God, thank you for this. God, thank you for this. That is what John is describing. It is not airbrushed. It's not fake but it is sturdy, it's colorful, and it's beautiful. And one thing I wanna acknowledge here is I've been talking primarily about you and I. What does it feel for us? What is it like when God heals me, when God meets me, when God takes care of me? And I wanna acknowledge that the best part of heaven is God. God in his full glory. Because even if you and I didn't exist at all, God would be beautiful and he would be marvelous and he would be powerful. And yet he created us to love him and to just worship him. And the best part of heaven is not us. The best part of new heaven and new earth is that he dwells with us. He is the most beautiful part. And so we will give him glory. Now, the end of the story, way out here, we know how it ends. We've been talking about it. But one more thing I want to point out is that that story, with the end point of Revelation 21, that story has already begun. That story has begun, and we are in it. We are in the middle of that story. Though we're not yet at the end, it's not a separate part of history. It actually comes all the way backwards to us. I want to use, point us to Jesus's words in Matthew chapter three, verse two. He says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here. The kingdom of heaven is invading. God's like throne room, his presence is now with us. If I uh, remember, we, I announced that today was uh, the day of Pentecost. That is heaven invading earth. That is God dwelling with his people more so now than ever before. God's presence is available to us because his kingdom has come. The end point, it's still distinct. There's still some specific things that need to happen. It's going to be very different, but it has begun now. 
I wanna draw our attention to Jesus' words, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means rethink. That's one of the primary ways of interpreting repent is rethink. Jesus is saying, rethink everything. Rethink your ways because heaven is here. The story is here. You can taste the end now. There might be some massive potholes on the way between now and the end of the story, but even like the dog throwing moments or the throwing the ball for the dog moments, that is a taste of heaven on earth because God is now with us. And we as followers of Jesus, our primary job at this point in history is to inject the joy that we get in the kingdom of heaven. We inject that joy and we inject that hope into other people's realities. We remind them that this story has invaded earth and we invite them to join. And again, we acknowledge the spiritual reality of Revelation. Revelation teaches us there's no such thing as neutral ground. Either you're saved by Jesus or you're not. And the way that that story ends is very, very different. And that motivates us as people that are joined in Jesus' mission. We go out and we invite our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family. We invite them into the kingdom of God. We invite them to taste heaven on earth. And so we rethink, we repent of everything. We rethink everything in light of the end of the story because God's glory is at stake. That's the end of the story. Not a wonderland for you and I, though that's part of it, but God's glory every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the end of the story. Now I have one point of application and I've been ending a couple of my last sermons this way. It feels almost like too simple, um, but I can't think of a, a better way to end with a point that we take home. It's simply believe. Revelation's weird. And we can choose, do I kind of like squint at it and go, I'm not really sure? Or do I say, no, I, it's weird. It breaks my logic, but my faith is in Jesus. And, and so I'm gonna believe. I'm gonna work to be faithful and educated, but I'm going to believe. This is how Revelation ends in chapter 22. Uh, it ends with a dialogue between Jesus and John. Um, I'd like to read this for us. It's a little bit long. Um, would you guys go ahead and do the next slide? This is Revelation 22, verse seven. Jesus says this, behold, I'm coming soon. And blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things Oh, I'm sorry. I think I put the wrong one on the screen. Let me figure this out. Verse 12, jump down to verse 12. Jesus says this, behold, I'm coming soon. I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who wash their robes meaning the robe washed in his redemption, so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city, the new Jerusalem by the gates. But outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
Now I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. The churches need to know. And then he says, I'm the root and I'm the descendant of David. I'm the bright morning star. And then it pivots to verse 17, the spirit and the bride. The spirit and the bride, meaning his saints. They say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires the water of life without price. And then John ends, I'm skipping down to verse 20. It says, he who testifies to these things, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And John writes this, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, amen. If we choose to believe in Jesus, we're choosing to believe that there will be an end. If you look at those four lines at the very end, there will be an end. Our age will stop. It's really easy to believe that like everything's just gonna kind of continue on. And what Revelation teaches is that things will end and they will change. Revelation also teaches there will be judgment where the goodness of God is displayed and the glory of God is made evident because he doesn't put up with evil. We also choose to believe there is sincere hope ahead. The end of the story is beautiful. And our response to all of it in belief is like John, we say, come Lord Jesus. That's our response, come Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, Um, no matter how we approach this, um, what is very clear is that you, Jesus, are coming back. You are coming back in that, like we can make that so weird and conspiratorial, but you, Lord, are coming back and we want you because nothing we have here on earth can, it just pales in comparison to the goodness before us as you dwell with us, as you show your face to us perfectly. Father, You've washed us with your robes. Those who are blessed who've washed their robes and you've offered us redemption through Jesus Christ, your lamb. You are victorious. Father, would we gather around your banner? Would that be the primary thing that we gather around, that the lamb has washed us and that we gather together a, a people from every nation and tribe and tongue that we are not... Um, opinionated on who's allowed into your kingdom, but we cast our nets wide. We are bold, full of your Holy Spirit to invite heaven to earth, that we begin to live in your kingdom more and more and more. Father, I ask in the simple moments, would you help us be aware of you, uh, that our own anxiousness and troubles would not keep us from remembering the kingdom is at hand and you are with your people. Lord, we love you. Amen.